Good morning. I had prepared a sermon this morning, but uh, Chapman's already preached it, so we'll pray. Be done. Just kidding. Good job, Chapman. Some exhortation. My name is J.D. I'm one of the pastors here. So glad that you are here with us and that we are able to gather with the saints this morning uh, as we continue to look at the life of Jesus this morning. Uh, the passages that we are observing this week and also next week should create in us a somber reflection for what Christ has endured on our behalf, a somber reflection. And as we think about this, and even the title for the sermon this morning, I want us to first grab a hymnal and let us begin there. So if you have a hymnal that's around you, I know there's not quite as many, so we can follow along with the words that I'll read. Um, turn to page 303 if you can find a hymnal around you. Share with someone. I think sometimes uh, we lose some of the words as we sing them, uh, but just sometimes just reading a hymn can help us to, uh, to see something really good. Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted is the title of my sermon. It is also from Isaiah chapter 4, and also, as you'll see, maybe in your hymnal, the title of this hymn. I'm going to start in verse 1, and I'm going to read through to verse 2. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Sometimes as you prepare during the week, you get overcome with joy, right? See him dying on the tree. Is the Christ by man rejected? Yes, my soul, tis he, tis he. Tis the long-expected prophet, David's son, yet David's Lord. By his son, God now had spoken. Tis the true and faithful word. Tell me, ye who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his friends through fear his cause disowning foes insulting his distress many hands were raised to wound him and none would interpose to save but the deepest stroke that pierced him was a stroke that justice gave these words were penned by Thomas Kelly in 1804, as we think about the weight and the heaviness of the passage this morning that we are about to read, it's important to remember that Jesus is the suffering servant that Isaiah foretold about in the passage that Brian read earlier in Isaiah 53. Jesus is the servant king rejected by his own people, abandoned by his closest friends, and as the hymn said, suffered the stroke of judgment. That justice gave. All this for God's eternal glory. And for our eternal good. Let's read John 19 this morning. John 19. If you have a Bible. Turn with me there. It's the fourth gospel. In the New Testament. Fourth book in the New Testament. Let's read it together. John chapter 19. And Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. 
And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. And Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to him, Behold, the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? To which Jesus replied, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar." So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in the Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king! And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered them over to be over to them to be crucified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for um, just the opportunity that we have to hear from your word. Lord, just the, the words that are on this page and in this chapter, Lord, are, are amazing and should captivate our thoughts and captivate our minds and our hearts, Lord, with affection for what you have done for us and, uh, and what you went through on our behalf to bring about the salvation of many. And it's in Jesus' name we humbly pray. Amen. If you take one thought with you this morning, I pray that you would take this thought, that Jesus willingly endured humiliation and condemnation to secure our salvation. Jesus willingly endured humiliation and condemnation to secure our salvation. So the first thing we're going to look at this morning is Jesus' humiliation. His humiliation. The Westminster Larger Catechism asks this question. So let me first tell you what a catechism is. Because I grew up for a long time. I went for a long time. Probably a good 35 years of my life. Not knowing what catechism was or catechesis is. And it's, a, it's basically theological instruction usually given in the form of questions and answers that help us understand and testify to the faith. So they help us. And so if you want a catechism to use for your family, I highly recommend the New City Catechism as an introduction. The New City Catechism, it is fantastic. But this one I'll be reading from uh, the Westminster Larger Catechism, and it asks this question. What was the estate of Christ's humiliation? What, is, what was the estate of Christ's humiliation? To, to the answer is this. 
the estate of Christ's humiliation was that low condition wherein he, for our sakes, emptying himself of his glory, took upon him the form of a servant in his conception and birth, life, death, and after his death until his resurrection. This is what Christ's humiliation means for us, and we rejoice. We rejoice that Jesus was born into the world in low estate. We rejoice that he was born in a manger, in the middle of a stable, in the middle of a small town. He was a a carpenter's son, not a rabbi's son, not the son of a chief priest or a Pharisee. He didn't come from high estate, but low estate. He likely worked diligently for his father before he began his earthly ministry. And even when he began his earthly ministry, he was immediately met with temptation from Satan. Then he goes on to perform miracles and healings and acts of grace. And through it all, he was met with contempt and frustration by the Jewish leaders. Imagine constantly being questioned for your motives, threatened by doubters, chased by those who are discontented with your teaching, and ultimately arrested under false pretense. This is the life that Jesus lived. And yet, and yet, nothing was more humiliating to him than than what, nothing more humiliating than what Jesus was experiencing in our text today. So if you look at verse 1, Pilate takes Jesus and he flogs him, he has him beaten. They beat him, they mock him, they spit on him. And they beat him with this device called a flagellum. A whip so heinous that I won't even go into detail what what it is and what it does. But I will tell you that it would leave Jesus bloodied. And beaten and scarred and wounded. And in so doing, Pilate hoped that it would help to satisfy and appease the crowd. So Pilate took Jesus, verse 1, he flogged him, verse 2. He says, the soldiers, they twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. And they arrayed him in a purple robe. And hell, king of the Jews struck him with their hands and smacked him around and made fun of him. They said they put a, uh, other, other gospels say that they put a scepter in his hand and they walked by him and saluted him, mocking him, scorning him, hailing him as king of the Jews. And then Pilate, verse 4, comes out again and says to them, see, I'm bringing him out to you. You may see that there's no guilt in him. And then Pilate brings Jesus and he says, behold the man, put him on display. What a humiliating thought. That a man that's been flogged and beaten and bloodied and scorned and mocked, wearing a crown of thorns on his head, is brought forth for the people to see, to put on display for everyone. 
and says, behold, the man. This is no ordinary man. Jesus is the son of man. Jesus gives himself this title 13 times in the gospel, a reference to his humanity and his deity. The designation son of man means for Jesus both he is human as we are and son of Adam. But he is also the coming Messiah who has been given authority by the Most High and reigns over his kingdom through his weakness, which is seen here most solemnly standing before a crowd of people. Jesus is fully man. But the part that they missed of the person standing in front of them that they were mocking, who stood stricken, smitten, and afflicted, was God, fully God. Jesus being paraded around by the soldiers and brought out before the crowds. Can you picture this with me? Can you picture this? That the God-man would come out and be put on display for all the people to see. But there's this display here that we need to capture. It is a love for us. It is a love for us that Jesus does this for us. What love is this? That God would come down to this very world and live a life of weakness. Of destruction. Christ would endure such suffering for a people like you and me. What, who does this? God does this. For God so loved the world. That he gave his one and only son. That who would believe in him shall not perish. But he be eternal life. That is a love for us. In Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sin in the garden. The first thing that they do is they hide from him. Their shame and their affliction and their humiliation. But Jesus says, no, I've bore your grief. I've carried your sorrows. The same is true for you and me this morning. That we don't have to walk in the fear and the shame and the humiliation of life. That we can rest in the one who went before us and was hailed king of the Jews, paraded around in front of a crowd that wanted to crucify him. And yet, here were Adam and Eve in the garden, humiliated by their sin. Their transgressions against the holy God who provided nothing but, but grace and sufficiency for them. And so because of Christ's humiliation, his love displays for us means that for the Christian here this morning, that if you live with shame and guilt over past failures and sins, I just want to encourage you that to forget what lies behind, Paul says, and strain towards what lies ahead. That's what his humiliation means for us. 
Maybe you're a Christian here who's living with shame and guilt of current ongoing sin. I just want to remind you that Christ suffered and was humiliated to free you from the bondage of that sin. That you too might walk in newness of life. I would encourage you to turn away from your sin. And trust in the only one who can save you who is Christ Jesus. The one who has bore your sorrows. But if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Maybe you believe your sin is so great. There is no way that you can come to a, to a holy God. Maybe there's no way you believe that Christ could ever forgive you. You're too humiliated by your sin. You're too broken by your past. I just want to tell you that the Bible, especially in the New Testament, gives us story after story of those who were far from God and yet brought near because of Christ. The story of redemption over and over again of thieves, adulterers, prostitutes, and yes, murderers. So I want to encourage you, don't let the guilt and shame of former or current sin keep you from experiencing the love of Christ in your life. Jesus suffered in this way. Because of his love for us, for many reasons, but because one, because of his love for us. Another reason I want to point out is, is this. That in this, he displays his empathy for us. By coming into this world, Christ demonstrated for us that he knows what it's like to endure trials. And hardships. Sufferings and humiliation. Hebrews reminds us that we have a great high priest who can sympathize with us and our weaknesses because he has endured the same hardships that we endure. But yet there's a difference. Christ did it perfectly on our behalf. Christ did it perfectly. John Calvin says this, For this one thought alone, Ought to be sufficient to conquer all temptations. That is when we know that we are companions or associates of the son of God. And that he who was far from far above us. Willingly came down to our condition. In order that he might animate us by his own example. Yea, it, it is thus that we gather courage. Which would otherwise melt away and turn as it were into despair. Do you recognize that Christ in this? He is bearing our grief. He is carrying our sorrows as the son of man. He's not just a man standing before a crowd. He is willingly enduring the suffering that you and I deserve, yet he does it for us. The question that I ask you this morning is, do you believe this? Do you put your hope in this? Do you rest in this? Do you trust in this? That his humiliation is for our good and sanctification. 
and for our salvation. It's a beautiful picture this morning of what Christ has done, of what God has done for his people. The second thing I want to point us to is that of condemnation. Jesus suffered great humili- uh, humiliation, but he also endured, willing, willing, endured willingly condemnation. Verse 2, a whole battalion of soldiers here is what Matthew and Luke tell us are gathered around Jesus and they twist a, a, crown, a crown of thorns. They place them on his head and they make sure that the, the thorns go into his scalp. This is a sign of a curse that was given back in Genesis chapter 3, which I've already referenced. When Adam and Eve sinned, they brought evil and curse upon the world. And part of that curse upon humanity was the ground in which we live. You shall, um, part of the curse uh, is, is that in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You see, the Roman soldiers unknowingly took an, took an object of the curse. And they fashioned it and formed it and shaped it and placed it on the head of Jesus. For the one who would deliver us from that very curse. You see, it is Christ who redeemed us from the curse. It is Christ who took on and who hanged on a tree to take away the curse and the sin of man. It is Christ who in his perfect atoning sacrifice has delivered us from the curse of sin of which thorn is a symbol. A thorn is a symbol of this curse. While intended to be a mockery, while intended to make fun and mock and and stricken and smite Jesus, The crown of thorns was, in fact, an excellent symbol. An excellent symbol of what Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. That he would take away the curse. Verse 6. And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, They cried out, crucify him, kill him, destroy him. Then in verse 15, at the beginning, they say, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Jesus is suffering a just and unjust condemnation from both the crowds and from Pilate. I'm a, I'm a big baseball fan. I enjoy a good baseball game. I enjoy especially college baseball. We have a pretty good college baseball program not far from here in East Carolina University. 
and this year before the 2022 season, the baseball team was ranked top 10 in the nation. It's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty good for a little old college in eastern North Carolina, right? To which, probably the highest preseason ranking they had ever had, to which they went on to lose the first five out of six games. The first three games that they lost were to a team ranked in the 200s. You can imagine the crowds that are at these games anticipating that, that they, this is the year, right? This is the year we're going to, to the College World Series. This is the year that we're going to win it and to start out the season losing five out of six and to go on to lose the next four out of five. You can figure up the record from there. You can imagine the crowds, what they're thinking. Man, the coach who's been a legendary coach, who's been a good coach for the program for the last 10 years, they're calling for him to be fired. To, to, to lose his job, to be replaced by someone else. But in the last 25 games, I think they're somewhere around 20 and 5. Back on the winning schedule. So you can imagine the crowds. Now, look how great a coach we have. He's amazing. He's awesome. This is the coach that we had 10 years ago and for the last 10 years. I want to tell you, we are that crowd. We are a fickle that when Jesus doesn't line up with what we believe him to be or to satisfy our greatest desires, we turn. But yet Christ, he is our all-sufficient Savior. And the crowds here and Pilate here, they miss it. They miss it. We miss it sometimes. We miss how good Christ is to us. We miss the depth of this, of this because we've read it so much. Because we've read this, this passage so much, it doesn't mean as much to us. It's just, oh yeah, man, that's the gospel. We got it. We got that Jesus was humiliated and condemned, and then he went to a tree, and he was crucified, and we wear a cross around our chest, our necks. But it doesn't rest in us doesn't dwell deep in us what, how fickle a people we are. The crowds are condemning Jesus when just a week ago in the timeline of the story of the Bible, they were heralding him as the future king to come. The king that would take away all their atrocities, give them their freedom. And then we get to verse 13. Pilate. He brings Jesus out. And he sits down on the judgment seat. On a place called the stone pavement. Or Gabbatha. And he sits down to sentence Jesus to an earthly death. 
But in so doing, it will be Jesus who will be the one that is the ultimate judge. As he now sits on the throne, on the heavenly throne, as the King of kings and Lords of Lord and Lord of Lords. That is who Jesus is. Believing him to be condemned, the people cry out, crucify him. Pilate, sitting on his little stool as his judgment seat, looks to Jesus and says, We're done. Behold your king. And deliver him over to be crucified. But it will be you and I who will face the greater judgment or face judgment. You see, Pilate, verse 11. Pilate believes he is in the place of authority. Look what he says. Start in verse 10. You won't speak to me, Jesus? You won't answer me? Do you not know who I am? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you, to let you go, and the authority to crucify you? Do you not know that I, the governor, have this authority? But you can just picture Jesus. No. No, you don't have any authority over me. You have no authority over me. At all. The only authority you have over me is because it's been given to you from above. I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. And yet, Jesus willingly endures the suffering, the humiliation. The true authority is found in a triune God. Pilate, like every one of us, will be judged according to our deeds. The Bible teaches that every human being will be brought forth before the judgment throne of God for an ultimate and decisive judgment. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So we will face condemnation. John 3.18 says that whoever does not believe stands condemned already. For those here who have, do not have faith in Jesus Christ, you will and are condemned. But this beautiful reminder from Romans 8 is that there is, no, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is that you this morning? Are you found in Christ Jesus? Do you recognize Jesus as a true king? As a song we just sang, the good and gracious King. Do you see Jesus this way? Do you see Jesus as the one that will enact just condemnation for those who remain in their unbelief? But for those who are found in Christ, it's a yes and amen for us. It's a beautiful thing for us that we 
would be found in Christ. My last one is this. I want us to take consideration. We've seen humiliation, condemnation. I want us to take some consideration this morning. I want us to take heart that Jesus willingly being humiliated and condemned into consideration for how it affects our lives. Both the Christian and the non-Christian. Yes, we see the love of Christ that affects us. We see the empathetic Christ that, that helps us. But what about the consideration of Christ and his humiliation and his condemnation for our salvation? You see, the supreme example of perseverance in the face of humiliation and condemnation is Jesus. If we look to him and consider him the one who suffered for his faithfulness, it will help us to, to not grow weary in doing good. But Jesus, we look to Jesus, who did not give up. Even though he faced intense agony, intense pain, and intense strickenness and smittenness, that's even a word, I don't know, sounds good to me, and his affliction, and that his example is sufficient for us to avoid sin and remain faithful until the end, since we shall never, ever suffer even a portion of what Jesus suffered, Lord willing. But yet, I want us to consider this. I want us to consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you and I may live. That you and I may live. But if you're not yet a Christian this morning, I want you to consider the weight of this. I want you to consider the just consequences of your unbelief. Ezekiel 18, 27 says this. When a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgression that he committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. But yet, yet, the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? You see, for the, the crowds here, and for Pilate himself, they didn't see Christ as the just. Or as a justifier. Pilate says three times. Once at the end of chapter 18. Twice here in our text today. In verse 4 he says I find no guilt in him. In verse 6 at the end I find no guilt in him. Verse 12 I have sought to release him. not by accident that the Apostle John put these statements in here. Pilate knew the truth in his head. He knew the truth in his head, but he didn't know Jesus in his heart. 
We need to weigh that. I think I know Jesus in my heart, but in my head, but do I know him in my heart? Verse 8. And they say that, uh, consider he has made himself the son of God, the end of verse 7. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He was even more afraid. His wife had even warned him back in Matthew earlier and prior to this. His wife had warned him to have nothing to do with this righteous man. Stay away from him for he has caused me much pain in my dreams. Much affliction in my dreams. But then look at verse 12. Consider this. Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. This put Pilate in a tough spot. Although he wanted to do one thing, he couldn't because he needed to satisfy his own self-preservation. Pilate, in the end, was too concerned with what others thought of him. He had to protect himself from upsetting the Jewish crowds who could take him off the governor's seat. But also needed to please his emperor. I wonder if this is us this morning. Do you fear what other people say or do because you believe in what the world would call a man? Do you fear being mocked? Harassed, humiliated for believing that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. I just want you to consider Pilate and the crowd. I want you to consider where you're at in this narrative. I want you to consider Christ who endured the hostility, the humiliation. The condemnation so that you may have life in him. Would you consider this? Would you consider this as true? As sure? As the musicians come, I want to read verses 3 and 4 of you, uh, for, from the hymnal. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted. 303. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great. That means you think very low things of sin. Here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. You see, here we have a, a firm foundation. Here, the refuge of the lost. Christ, the rock of our salvation. His, the name of which we boast. Lamb of God for sinners wounded, sacrifice to cancel guilt. 
None shall ever be confounded who on Him their hope have built. Does your hope rest in Christ this morning? Do you trust in the rock of our salvation, the Lamb of God for sinners wounded who through His sacrifice canceled your guilt? Do you trust in Jesus who bore the awful load, who suffered in a horrendous way so your firm foundation would be found in Him and nothing else? See, Jesus was stricken, he was smitten, he was afflicted, he was humiliated and condemned as a criminal. But in all of this, he was the perfect, obedient son of man who bore the wrath that justice gave. 